Hello, welcome back to the Future of Dermatology podcast. This is Farah Kamengar, and today we have a really fun Ask Me Anything episode. And our guest host is none other than Peyton Smith, our wonderful SF Derm medical student. He, of course, is going through his medical school training, but is also doing a, currently a clinical research fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco, and is doing lots and lots of exciting uh, projects. Peyton, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, uh, Dr. Kamangar. It's, it's great to see you. Yeah, so much fun. So Peyton's basically going to ask me a bunch of questions, and we'll just go through and ask and talk about them. I will let you take it away. Okay, thank you. So my first question is, I've been hearing a lot about patch testing. I've kind of, you know, done some research, but just for the audience out there, um, can you kind of talk about what patch testing is? Who is it for? You know, someone comes into the clinic and you decide to patch test them. What might you be looking for? And uh, just kind of dis describe the process if you can. Oh, absolutely. That's a great question. Patch testing is something we should all probably be doing even more of. It is testing for type 4 type of allergies or contact allergies, basically things that come into contact with your skin. Um, usually items that you might have even been exposed to for even over time because your skin has become sensitized to it. So one thing we hear a lot from patients is, oh, I couldn't possibly be allergic to that one thing because I've used it for years. But that's actually by definition, you sort of have to get exposed to something before, have a little bit of a... Uh, uh, built up uh, T cells that will react when you see that antigen again. So basically, the contact dermatitis itself could present a little differently. There's like the classic rash we see with, let's say, like poison oak, where it's red and you get little blisters and all of that. But you could even get this mild itching, mild eczema um, type symptoms. So when patients come in with rash that just doesn't do what we want it to do, which is, you know, treat with the medicine that we think would treat it, we have to start thinking about contact dermatitis. Or if it's just in like weird places that you're like, that something must have touched your skin there. Like for example, like we're talking right now, we all have our earbuds that if a patient came in and had a rash right around their earbud area, we're like, okay, maybe you have an allergy to your wearable. Or they come in and they have an allergy you know, around their feet. We're like, okay, maybe it's the shoes or different different things that the, the site is suggestive that it's actually something that your skin's touching. The ones like the rash on the face and things like that that we can't figure out, those are difficult because there is so much stuff out there that we're putting on our skin, like shampoos, conditioners, moisturizers, sunscreens, cosmeceuticals, all the things. So there's so many more ingredients coming out that it's almost kind of hard to keep up with allergens now, I feel like, because there's so much stuff people are putting on their skin. But basically, come back to a patch test. Technically, what a patch test is, we put a bunch of little patches on your back and they contain different antigens in them. Um, different clinics might use different ones. For our, like a true test is a common one, but it's not very comprehensive. So a lot of derm clinics will use the North American Contact Dermatitis Series. That's a little more elaborate test, like 80 plus antigens. And then you can add on to that. So let's say someone is like a dentist, you would add the dental tray for like common stuff you touch as a dentist or um, let's say you're worried about eyelid dermatitis you want to add things like and they dye their hair you want to add like hair dye series so you can add kind of extra patches and we always have patients bring their own products in too so if we're able to patch their own products sometimes that's really helpful too so we put a bunch of patches on your back you can't wash it because there's like tapes keeping it in place you can't wash that area for like a good two days so usually we just do monday wednesday friday visits in one week 
They come in on Monday, apply everything, can't shower from Monday to Wednesday. Wednesday, they come back, we take off the patches, and then we do the first read. So early on, you might be starting to show some reaction. Then they come back Friday, and we look for things that took all week to kind of show up. Then there are a couple late reactants. We don't schedule past Friday, but we always tell patients, you know, like this spot, this spot, this spot could take more than seven days. So if you see something popping up next week, just let me know. Every once in a while that happens too. So that's basically the gist of the patch test to try to identify what you might be allergic to. That's sort of the first battle. If you don't have anything we find, maybe it's just intrinsic eczema, maybe it's irritant, dermatitis. So it's not really an allergy, but so you're just putting on a ton of like, I don't know, I'm just going to make up a, a, a thing regimen here, but so you're putting a ton of glycolic acid every night or something. Little doses, that's fine, but high doses, maybe you're irritating yourself. Or you might just have intrinsic genetic changes that kind of give you eczema. But let's say you do find some contact allergens, then we can give you lists. And the Contact Dermatitis Society is really great. They have a really good database. You can plug in the ingredients and it kind of gives you a safe list. Uh, it's a little hard, I, I have to admit, even at that stage when we find the positives, it's not always the easiest thing for patients because you have these like long names like you're allergic to like methyl chloroisothiazolinone and I'm like, please go look for that and in <laughs> and, and your ingredients. And sometimes it's not called that. Sometimes it's called Kathon. So like all, it's not the easiest for a patient, but it's a good start basically. And then it also kind of just confirms that, you know, this is probably more allergy driven. Um, contact dermatitis, if caught early enough, you can maybe alter the course of it. But sometimes if you've paralyzed just something for a long time, even if you take away the allergen, the rash might still persist just because your skin has just learned to do that, the inflammatory cells. So it can become chronic. So it's really important to patch this early. And um, if there's allergens, let's get rid of it. But hopefully that wasn't too long of an answer. But that's basically- No, no. Just... So, okay, my follow-up question would be, I've been to the allergist before, and it, I think that they may have done maybe a similar test. Maybe it's called like a, a scratch test there or- well, what would you say is the difference between, you know, the patch testing done by a dermatologist and the type of test that an allergist might do, if you're familiar with those other tests? Great question. Allergists can do a wide variety of allergy tests. Uh, a lot of times they'll do type 1 hypersensitivity type testing to environmental allergens like grass, pollen, all that kind of stuff, uh, animals, foods. So they do that type one type of testing and uh, they can do that via the, like the RAS test or those skin prick tests. Um, they can do it via blood as well. Sometimes serum tests. Lots of allergists will actually also do type four allergy patch testing, but they're a little bit different. They're mediated um, a little bit differently. Like the type four is more like the T cell driven type of allergy, that kind of memory T cell versus type one is more like IgE driven and just more of like a, a sensitivity. Uh, both are important. And I that you bring up a good point because sometimes I'll ask patients, I'll say, have we done patch allergy testing? And they'll say, yeah, yeah, I've done that. But I'm like, okay, what did you actually, did you put stuff on like those little patches on your back? And you, so yeah, yeah, I did the thing on my back. I'm like, okay, but was it like a strip like this with little tiny dots and you came on the days like Friday? Or was it like a little prick on your back? I'd be like, oh yeah, the prick. So it, it's actually, I think, very patients think it's all kind of the same thing understandably we're saying allergy testing but there are kind of various of allergies that you can have um i, I some allergists do patch testing 
thoroughly as well. Most might do like a true test, which is also not bad. Actually, that picks up a good amount, but it's not super complete. It might miss some allergens. So it might be good, especially if you feel like you have a strange allergy that you haven't figured out over years. It might be good to do it with the dermatology department just because then we'll test you for everything. And then there's specific centers that really focus on patch testing. They'll go even the extra mile and they'll do all sorts of interesting things like there's photo patch testing that we can like test you to even allergies to UVA, UVB. We could get all sorts of fancy with uh, the different uh, allergies that can come. Wow. So I think it might, if you're having recalcitrant skin disease, can't figure it out. It's it's good to be plugged in with dermatology. The moral of the story, go to your dermatologist for patch testing, go to your allergist for the the prick testing. Um, but that that's good to know. Thank you so much for, for uh, t- telling me about that. So then my second question would be um, about oral minoxidil for hair loss. I've kind of heard some stuff about it. I've heard some people say, stay away from it. It could cause, you know, like heart problems or blood pressure problems. Some people seem to say, oh, it's a, it's a cure for um, alopecia. What, what are your thoughts on oral minoxidil for hair loss? Yeah, so oral minoxidil has been around for a very long time, but it's kind of gained celebrity status after a New York Times article, I think it was, last year. So then everybody started coming to our clinic and asking for it. So it's not a novel therapy in in any any sort of way. Um, It does help grow hair for sure. We do use it in clinic as well, especially a little more since patients ask for it. And we say, okay, that's reasonable. Let's do it. Um, it can have cardiovascular side effects. It is a blood pressure medicine, so it can drop your blood pressure. Uh, usually there's certain instances where we, I just don't prescribe it. Like for example, over age 70, history of cardiac events, arrhythmias, it's probably good not to mess with things too much. But if someone's young and healthy and they want to try it, we start low dose. We go maximum to about like 2.5 milligrams. Although for blood pressure and other things, primary care docs will go higher than that. Uh, but usually below 2.5 milligrams, the risks seem to be lower for having um, the heart problems, lower extremity edema. Lowering your blood pressure still can happen at lower than 2.5 milligrams just because it is a blood pressure medication. So we just have to be kind of careful about that. But it is it does work. It is efficacious. Um, you'll get also maybe hair in places you don't want. That's maybe the downside of oral versus topical minoxidil. Topical minoxidil, of course, is Rogaine brand name, but lots of different brands have it now as well. Traditionally, it's been Rogaine. Lots of different brands have it. We usually recommend the 5% for everyone topically. And then there's, of course, compound pharmacies that make higher than 5% as well. Um, There are lower than 5% formulations out there over the counter too, but 5% is pretty safe. So we usually just say if you're doing it, you might as well use the higher percent so it works a little bit better. But yeah, oral minoxidil is there for the right right patient. Um, totally reasonable to take if they don't have any uh, side effects to it or any like, precautions. Thank you. And then, so I've also heard a little bit about the topical minoxidil and finasteride combinations. Would you say that would be a safe treatment uh, route to go down? Absolutely. The topicals are pretty safe. They actually have a little bit less absorption into the body, so safer than taking things orally for sure. Minoxidil has been, when you go to compounding pharmacy, it's been mixed with different things like finasteride, sometimes topical spironolactone. Sometimes they'll throw a little bit of tretinoin in there so it increases the absorption of all the other ingredients. They, the, it, 
question of how much more those ingredients are adding to the minoxidil, I don't think we have a lot of great data to show that, oh yeah, it makes it way better to add this and that. So I think it's, you know, starting with just minoxidil is probably good enough. And the main reason for that is the cost goes up as you add these things. So you can probably get 5% minoxidil pretty inexpensively now over the counter. And the thing is you have to keep doing this for a really, really long time. So I think I would just pick the most kind of cost-effective way that works. Because when you go to compounding, it just makes each month's formula more expensive. The more stuff you add in there, it adds up to. Or if you're doing it every month for like years, um, I don't know how much more added benefit there is. But we use these things all the time. So our patients do prefer to like throw everything in there. Thank you. Well, my next question has to do with um, a topic that I'm very passionate about and very interested in and have some research coming out and hopefully very soon. But the topic of chronic itch um, for patients, what over-the-counter or prescription products are your favorite? Do you think are the most efficacious for patients that struggle with chronic itch? Yeah, that's a really good question. Chronic itch can be difficult. Um, sometimes it's difficult to kind of figure it out. There are different pathways to it. There's, of course, inflammation somewhere, whether it's in the skin or in the nerve endings. Um, there's definitely an inflammatory piece. So there's always the anti-inflammatories like the topicals that we prescribe. Over the counter, you can't get too high of a strength of anti-inflammatories. So like you get hydrocortisone 1%, which might not be high enough. You could also try antihistamines, which sometimes work. But past that, I think the prescription anti-inflammatories um, it'll work a little bit better. As far as the skin barrier repair, that we should do regardless. So whatever is happening to your skin, wherever the itch is coming from or the inflammation, we know that inflammation, and if it's itchy enough or you're scratching, we know those all of those things affect your skin barrier, meaning your just ability of your skin to kind of keep things out, not become irritated, and keep hydration is really important. So the over-the-counter products for hydration are pretty good. Um, I would, of course, stay hydrated as well. Just drink lots of water and stay hydrated so that your dermis is staying plump and the hyaluronic acid of the dermis is holding on to as much water as it can. And then the epidermal layer, you want to use soaps and things that are not too harsh where they're stripping your barrier, just really mild soaps in the shower, um, not super hot showers. And then when you're out of the shower and you want to just do a really good emollient to seal in moisture so you can repair your skin barrier uh, as much as you can. That might not fix everything, but it's a good, and sometimes patients have said to me, you know, I'm like suffering from this itch and you keep telling me to put on moisturizer. And sometimes it does seem like there is this disconnect for sure because every dermatologist says that but like if we're not getting to the inflammation piece they could put all the moisturizer they want but they're still kind of irritating it and waking up at night with itch uh, so I always explain to them it's not the only piece for sure I totally understand that it's not like a dismissing the itch and say oh just moisturize but it really is an important really super important part to keep the barrier intact because if the barrier is not intact it's just going to make it worse um, so over-the-counter things, there's lots of good um, emollients. There's lots of really good brands that we recommend with like ceramides. Some of those oat-containing ones can be a little bit anti-inflammatory. Um, there's like CeraVe. Avino makes a really good itch relief balm, um, like eczema itch relief balm with oat that really kind of suits the skin. Cetaphil is another good one. The La Roche-Posay Lipicare one works really well too. So just ways to get the skin barrier in a back, but chronic itch is yeah, definitely multifactorial. So that another reason to see the dermatologist. Absolutely. And can you kind of talk about, you know, the difference between 
an emollient versus a, like a lotion or, you know, just some of those terms that um, maybe some of our viewers might not know the difference between? Yeah, that's a really good point. So emollients are just kind of like a large um, bucket kind of category, but there are different things you can formulation. So there's lotions, there's creams, there's ointments. We generally recommend creams actually over lotions. Lotions mostly have water in the composition. So they feel a little bit nicer putting on. They're not super greasy, but they don't have a whole lot of the ingredients to add moisture to your skin. When you go to like, that's like usually the pumps or usually lotions, just so it can kind of even come up the pump. Um, when you go to the creams, which is usually like the jars that you have to open, the creams can start to feel a little oilier, but dry skin. And if you're really trying to repair your skin, you need creams or ointments. Creams are less greasy than ointment, so it's usually the go-to um, in-between thing. And they just have a higher content of ceramides and other um, uh, moisturizing ingredients rather than just being made up mostly of water. Ointments are usually really good and they're very inclusive, but then you probably don't want to like douse your entire body with like Vaseline or Aquaphor. But in hot spots, they work really well to seal off. Uh, but usually a lot of times if it's sort of like an Aquaphor Vaseline, it's more just barrier. It's not kind of driving a lot of hydration into the skin. So I still say put a cream underneath that kind of seal it in with an ointment. But it, it's true that yeah, the vehicle of delivery does matter. Because sometimes patients have I've been using lotion every single day and nothing's getting better, but maybe it wasn't, you know, high enough concentration um, to actually moisturize your skin. Yeah, I hate the feeling of a cream on my skin, but I hate the feeling of being itchy way more. So I just need to rem to remind myself of that. Like, okay, this is not as bad as the alternative. So it's not as, and then it does absorb into the skin quickly. It's usually like you might put something on here, like, oh, that's way greasy, yeah. but your skin might just need it, and your skin will just take it up. And it won't be super greasy in a few minutes. So. Yeah, like a sponge, it just soaks it right in. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so this next question was submitted by one of my friends. Um, she said she's been hearing a lot about. Argireline, if I'm saying that right. Um, I think it's a peptide. So Argireline, would you say it works or would it be better to just use like uh, tretinoin or how would you include uh, Argireline into your skincare if you do? Um, Argireline versus tretinoin. And we're kind of talking about like Retin-A for wrinkle reduction is, is kind of a category we're definitely talking about. Argireline is interesting. It's a hexapeptide that mimics the effects of Botox. Um, so it's like they're neurotoxins. They basically make it less likely for your muscles to make the movement that creates the wrinkles. So they're kind of moving on, working on the movement of, of the skin. Tretinoin, on the other hand, retinoic acid um, increases collagen in the skin. So it basically kind of boosts collagen repair normalizing the fibroblasts. So they kind of do different things, both targeting making wrinkles because basically the collagen loss is what really creates the wrinkle, like the movements of the muscle you've been doing since you were a baby. Babies even do it more strongly. Like if they're hungry, they're like, ah, you know, and then you see the, like the, the, the forehead muscle is probably going stronger than any adult even does. But their skin doesn't wrinkle over because they have so much collagen and elastin and kind of goodies of their skin. And then at some point, you lose collagen every year. In the late 20s, the collagen gets light enough in the skin where with the same exact movement, now the skin folds over and starts creating the wrinkle. And then you get less and less collagen, so the wrinkles get deeper and deeper. So it's kind of a multifactorial. So you got to repair the collagen, 
So your skin's not folding over as much. But then with the neurotoxins, you're just trying to knock out your muscles so you can't even make the movement. That wrinkles the yeah. skin. So probably long explanation, but basically they, they work so differently that it's hard to put them head to head. But I would say, so arginine is a topical, so it has to get through the skin to work, which is it's not very good at doing. A little bit gets through, um, but it's not as good as like botulinum toxin, right. uh, like Botox or Dysport, where you literally are injecting it right where it needs to be. So if you were to compare like Botox, tretinoin, I would say do both because they're going to do different things, but I'd say Botox will probably get you there faster because it literally will just knock out your muscle completely. Arjun is different because it'll work a little bit, but it's not as good as injectable botulinum toxin. So that one is, I think, still, maybe I would pick tretinoin over that just because we know tretinoin is going to get into your skin. It's a smaller molecule. It'll do what we want it to do. Arjunin might not get to your skin. And then it's also a less stable compound. So depending on what company you're getting it from, you don't really know kind of the concentrations you're getting versus botulinum toxin, which is like very regulated. Um, we know exactly if we put in a few units, we know what'll happen. These topical hexapeptides or peptides in general has to do with their size, their manufacturing, how much is actually still there after like a month or two, how much of it is still active. So there's so many variables. Um, Whereas tretinoin, I think most companies know how to make tretinoin pretty stable in a stable condition now. So again, long answer, but in that Arjun versus tret, I think tret wins. Yeah, I, I think I would have to say that as well. I My skincare is, you know, make it as simple as possible. And usually if I'm like, you know, after we get past maybe three or four steps, I'm like, mm, I don't have time for this. So really, as long as I'm getting the tret, I'm like, I think I, I think my bases are covered with the tret. And then, you know, maybe some some moisturizers after that. Oh, 100%. Yep. Moisturize, tret, and sunscreen. <laughs> and you're, you're pretty good. Yeah, you you can't go wrong with those. Probably save the money that people spend all those other things. Just save it up and just get Botox a couple of times a year. How much easier. So this next question, um, kind of similar to the topic of collagen production simulation, but um, let's talk about microneedling. How often um, should you get microneedling done, if at all? And then um, what have you heard about at-home microneedling is it safe? Should we stay away from it? Yeah, another great question. Microneedling is great. Basically, when you come into the office, what we do is we poke lots of little holes with these little needles in your skin. And as the little channels are healing, you build more collagen. So it's just like an in-office way of building collagen as well. So you have like your ways at home with a tretinoin. And then we have lots of ways in office like microneedling, lasers, radiofrequency microneedling to kind of create a little bit of heat and injury to the skin. So you create more collagen. Um, usually we recommend just doing it like every month for a few rounds and then maybe keeping it up every three to six months. Collagen building after a procedure can take a couple months or sometimes even up to like three to six months to see full improvement. So I wouldn't be like, oh, okay, just did a microneedling. Let's see how my skin's doing two days later. But um, it takes a while for collagen to get built. So after you've been doing these continuously, usually we recommend a series and then you'll kind of start to see things kicking in. At home is not a bad idea either. It's just a little less regulated. So when things are less regulated, it's hard to know. It could be a terrible device. It could be jagged edges that, uh, you know, cut your skin and cause scarring, hyperpigmentation, uh, infections. Those things could happen. 
I'm sure most of the devices that are out there and they give you proper instruction, you follow it, are probably fine. Um, but then it's just so unregulated versus the devices that we use in offices have so much regulation that goes into it. So that's the only disclaimer that I, I would make. And also they won't be, of course, and nothing at home is as strong as we do in the office. So if they're kind of pricey, I think just save the money and go go into the office for the procedure. Gotcha. And then what does the recovery time period look like? Or like, am I going to go into work the next day looking kind of crazy, like we're super red and inflamed? What, how, what's the process there? It's actually not too bad with microneedling. Usually we say like give it two, three days of no you know, huge events. But a lot of times even the next day, everyone's fine. Right after you do look kind of crazy because we've poked lots of little holes in your face. And usually you put like a peptide gel on or if we pair it with PRP, you have like literally parts of your own blood on your face. So <laughs> there are right after there's a little craziness. But the next day it really doesn't look too bad. It's not super, it's not like a blade of laser where you're red for like a week. That's good to hear. Okay, so... Maybe I can just schedule it on a Friday and then and then be good on Monday. You'll be fine by Monday, totally. <laughs> okay, that's great. But stop your tretinoin a week before. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I'll I'll put that on my calendar. <laughs> so then my last question um, is about scars. Um, also, one of one of my friends had this question uh, that she wanted me to send in, but. Um, scars that, you know, have, haven't changed in over a year, you know, maybe you forgot to put on your, um, your silicone sheets for a while. And then, you know, you're still unhappy with the look of your scar. Is there anything that can be done about that? Um, or is it kind of like set in stone? Yeah, no, it's never too late for scars. So there's all sorts of different scars. So you can have pigmented scars, which we can work on the pigment. If it's brown or red, we can work on that. If it's an atrophic scar, I mean, the scar is kind of like a divot. We can work on that to build collagen, to get it to fill in. If you have a hypertrophic scar, which is going the other way, it's like overgrown, thick scar, or at most a keloid, which is even like a thick scar, but even out of bounds of where the scar should be. Those we have ways to kind of shrink down the scar. So knowing there's lots of things you can do. At about a year, if you've been doing different things like silicone gel and different things at home, maybe those might be limited. But that might have a little bit less efficacy. Maybe just come in for the in-office procedures. But in, in office with lots of things, you could do it anytime. There's there's no like it's too late. You've missed the boat. What type of in in office procedures would you recommend? So so we have all sorts of different ones. So you brought up microneedling, which is a good one. We do a lot of that for atrophic acne scarring. You could do it for any type of scar that's a little bit atrophic. You kind of want it to fill in, uh, like the, the, it's a little bit indentation or unsmooth kind of texture you can we can microneedle we can go to even more intense lasers like a fraxel or radio frequency where we cause a little bit more heat with the damage to fill those in sometimes if it's like a really super deep scar we'll even add a little bit of a chemical peel like a trichloracetic acid um, to get that to fill in a bit more and the other parts of the hypertrophic scars we have lots of ways we can do too most common are little steroid injections we do to the thickened hypertrophic scars but yeah, lots of different different ways to kind of attack scars. So never too late. That's good to hear. I'm sure my friend will be excited about that. Um, but yeah, I think that's all the questions I had for, for today. Those are awesome questions, Peyton. Very, very fun. And then we always end the podcast since it's the future of dermatology podcast. We always end it with if you're any if you're excited about anything for the future of dermatology, 
Um, so any anything you wanted to add about what you're excited about or things that you see might happen for the future? Yeah, so um, there's, there's many parts of dermatology that I'm very excited for and excited to see um, where future research takes us. But probably the most exciting thing for me um, as a patient right now um, would be the use of tofacitinib in um, patients that experience uh, chronic idiopathic pruritus or just chronic itch. Um, you know, as a patient that struggles with that myself, um, seeing that possibly be FDA approved one day um, for patients like myself is, is very exciting because at the moment we don't currently have any uh, treatment that is FDA approved specifically for um, chronic idiopathic pruritus or just you know, patients that experience experience itch um, without any kind of rash or a reason, you know, why they might be itching. So that's exciting for me. And then um, hopefully, you know, we might be able to uh, further the research on that. And I hopefully would be a part of that one day. But yeah, so that's what I'm pretty excited for. Yeah, I think it's it's so amazing when physicians also suffer from a condition. I think they just take the science so much further because you have that insight. Um, and we were chatting, we should do really do another episode where I'd love to kind of hear about your personal journey um, with this as well. So that's, that's, I think it's really important for that, that empathy piece, because you just are like living with something and you kind of understand the ins and outs. And we talk a lot about like shared medical decision making, which is you know, that conversation between patient and a doctor. Uh, but what if like the the physician had actually like lived a lot of that as well. So that makes it so much easier. And all of these new FDA approvals indications are really great. They're making our lives so much easier to then ask insurance companies to cover medications that might help a patient. So really exciting things coming up. Yeah. But thank you so much, Peyton. 